it is an opportunity for the world to come together and talk about these things. The UNFCCC has put together an enormous amount of transparency and reporting. It sounds like, you know, things that are not all that exciting, but they're, they're fundamental uh, to an understanding of where we are with respect to climate change and how to reduce emissions going forward. Welcome to Environmental Insights, a podcast from the Harvard Environmental Economics Program. I'm your host, Rob Stevens, a professor here at the Harvard Kennedy School and director of our program. We've had the pleasure of including in these podcast conversations over the past three years some leading environmental economists, and today is no exception, because my guest today, Ray Kopp, has been a leader in this field for some 40 years, nearly all of it from his perch at Resources for the Future, the Washington-based think tank, where he is a senior fellow. Welcome, Ray. Thanks, Rob. Thanks for having me. I've been looking forward to this for quite some time. Great. So in a few minutes, I'm eager to hear your assessment of what we should expect to happen at this year's climate negotiation, the 27th Conference of the Parties of the United Nations Framework Convention on Climate Change that's taking place in Sharm el-Sheikh, Egypt. But first, let's go back to how you came to be where you are. Where where did you grow up? So I was born in New York City, uh, in Queens. Um, Was there until I was, oh, I suppose, nine or ten, and then um, moved north of the city um, into um, Westchester County. Uh, and grew up there, uh, and been left to uh, to uh, pursue my education. So, primary school and high school, where where? That was in uh, Westchester County, in a little town called Katona, uh, which uh, was on the uh, rail line, so my dad could commute uh, into the city every day. I see. And then you went off to college. Tell us about that. Where was that? Well, so that was a, a bit of a detour uh, in my uh, in my higher education. I thought I was going to be a chemical engineer. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I went to the University of Akron, which mm-hmm. many of you know as the um, hub of polymer chemistry in the United States. Uh, quickly became obvious that I was not going to be a chemical engineer, uh, given um, the interesting world that took place in the late 60s. Uh, and I ended up with a, um, a degree in business uh, from uh, from the University of Akron. And then... Um, uh, taught uh, economics at the university for a while and went on for a PhD at uh, State University of New York at Binghamton. And so in your PhD, um, what was your dissertation topic and and who was on your dissertation committee? So the topic was, uh, was, as with many uh, people looking for topics, um, I was uh, doing an applied topic in uh, microeconomics. At that time, there was no real environmental or natural resource mm-hmm. uh, subfield. Uh, and so it was an examination of electric power and how electric power plants were adapting to, at the time, the new Clean Air Act. Uh, and it uh, involved a, uh, a lot of econometrics. Uh, my uh, uh, lead advisor was Kerry Smith, uh, uh-huh. who had been at RFF uh, a couple of years before. And uh, it was actually a, a most enjoyable experience. Unlike many people's dissertations, I actually really enjoyed uh, producing that, uh, that document. It's interesting. I didn't realize that Kerry Smith had been your uh, your advisor there. It was my luck that he that he was there. Uh, since I had taught quite a bit uh, at the University of Akron, uh, uh, I went uh, when I went to uh, to Binghamton. They didn't put me on as a TA. They 
put me into the research side, uh, and I got assigned to Kerry. And um, uh, first interactions with Kerry Smith, um, many people who you know Kerry, uh, he doesn't sleep. Uh, he works all the time, um, but he's just a, you know, a remarkably wonderful individual, and uh, you couldn't have asked for a better dissertation advisor. And, and very, very, very generous. I mean, intellectually generous, perhaps other ways as well. So when I was doing my PhD, which I received in, in 1988, so I think I started in the program at Harvard in 1983, um, at some point when we had to choose fields, which probably would have been like 1985 or so, my beginning of my third year, uh, there was, of course, as you've suggested, no field in environmental economics. Actually, there isn't even now in the Harvard department. But one could design their own field. And so I decided I wanted to study environmental economics for my self-designed field. And I sent out letters to a few people asking for reading lists and what they would recommend. And I only remember one letter that I got back, and that was from Kerry Smith. And he essentially laid out for me the field of environmental economics that then I did a couple of readings courses with uh, professors. Yeah, his, his, his knowledge of the literature uh, was and still is mind-boggling. Um, uh, how he keeps it all in his head, I have no idea. But uh, yeah, he could, you could call him and ask him about anything in the field of environmental and natural resource economics. And over the phone, he will spit out the 12 best references that you ought to look at. Yeah, yeah very much so. So um, you graduate from uh, Binghamton with your PhD in economics. What's your first position out of graduate school? Resources for the future. Kerry had left Binghamton, uh, had gone to resources for the future. Uh, I was in the job market uh, and uh, had looked at a couple other opportunities, um, uh, names of which we won't we won't go into. Um, um, but from my wife's perspective, these were in some odd parts of uh, of the U.S. And uh, whereas an offer from RFF came, uh, where we could live in Washington D.C., uh, and that uh, that fit her uh, quite well. Uh, as it turns out, fit me perfectly. So we ended up going to uh, uh, to Washington D.C. I left uh, Binghamton. Uh, in August of 1977, uh, um, and the next day um, moved to Washington and started the work the following day. And since then, you've been at RFF consistently, except I believe for a visiting professorship uh, at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill in the early 1980s. Is that, that right? That's that's correct. Uh, you can always target the year I was there because it's when uh, Dean Smith won his first national championship. I see. So, but that was quite an, it, a wonderful experience. Um, but it took me away from research, and uh, mm-hmm. I couldn't see myself uh, being a professor for the rest of my life. Uh, there was just too much other stuff that I wanted to do. Although Chapel Hill, I got to tell you, it was it's just a gorgeous. So, you know, the university is a gorgeous facility and the town is wonderful. So let's turn to your work in the world of environmental economics and policy scholarship before we get into uh, actual policy itself, like COP27. Now, I would assume that you've seen some significant changes, Ray, in the scholarly world of environmental economics since your, is it 1978 PhD degree? 
um, because that's more than two decades ago. So what changes in the scholarly world of environmental, resource, energy, economics, whatever, stand out to you? That's, that's a tough question. I do think kind of the breadth and depth of what was happening. So if you dial back into the 70s and the 80s, uh, again, you had people who were working in the field who did not come from environmental, natural resource, economics backgrounds. They came from public finance. Uh, they came from industrial organization. Uh, they came perhaps from a, uh, from a modeling perspective. Uh, and they were doing um, large-scale analyses of the implication of regulatory structures, which were new for both the U.S. and the world. Uh, the, you know, the Clean Air Act, um, obviously still one of the most important pillars in the United States. The Clean Water Act, uh, other policies like that. And so it was looking at the impacts that those policies would have, not only on the emissions, um, but on the, um, the economic activities within, uh, within a country. Um, I think everything's gotten a lot more narrow now. People have gotten a mm -hmm. lot more specialized. Um, and you're not getting, you know, kind of the broad analyses of those kind of policies, except at the international scale where we're talking about, you know, climate change, where, you know, again, big integrated assessment models are doing that broad kind of analysis. And so when I was at RFF uh, as an active researcher, we were... Um, deeply involved in the energy crisis of the 70s, for example, um, and spending a lot of time thinking about how to model the impacts of that. Um, and then as you went through and developed more regulatory structures, understanding how those structures would affect individual industries, um, would affect uh, economies, and would affect, obviously, the, um, the environment in which those uh, industries were located. So I'm not criticizing what's, what's happening today. I'm just saying there has been a narrowing of the focus mm -hmm. where someone who is involved in environmental and natural resource economics is, is really um, looking at a much more um, finely disaggregated kind of problem than we were looking back at the 70s and early 80s. And it's not surprising that as the field matured, uh, it became more specialized in terms of the foci of individuals working in the field, right? Oh, absolutely, yeah. 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 And the tools yeah. have gotten so much better. Uh, yes. Certainly the, you know, the computational tools are, are now obviously you know, far better than they were um, when, when, when I was doing the dissertation. I'm sure when you we were as well, Rob. Yeah, absolutely. So before we turn to the policies world, I want to ask you one other question about your research and your writing. And I apologize because I know this is like asking you to identify identify your favorite child, but of all the published research of yours, and there is a lot in your CV, what's the one research publication that you are most proud of? Uh, like an, an easy answer to that is uh, the work I did with Michael Hazilla, where we you mm -hmm. know, developed a, a, a general equilibrium model, one of the first ones in the U.S., and looked at the mm -hmm. impact of the Clean Air Act uh, on the national economy. Um, but I will say that at the same time I was doing scholarly research um, uh, with Michael Hazilla, um, I was also involved with another group of individuals who were working on um, major environmental disasters, including the Exxon Valdez. Um, and the work we did supporting the litigation around those disasters, those oil spills and other kinds of contamination, was one of the most exciting bits of research mm -hmm. I've ever been engaged in. Uh, it didn't necessarily result in a AER publication, um, but it, they were big interdisciplinary teams. We were doing cutting-edge research, and it was, uh, to me, tremendously exciting. Which turned out to be very important. And also, I believe, maybe I'm wrong about this, but my recollection is that some of the work you did uh, in supporting that litigation 
actually did appear in one form or another as write-ups in some publications, did it, it not? It, it absolutely did. There was a lot of confidentiality that had to be cleared, um, yeah. but we were able to publish yeah, a good deal of that work. Yeah. yeah, so it's worthwhile now for people to go back and take a look at some of that. Now, turning to current times, um, COP27 in Sharm el-Sheikh uh, is obviously receiving a lot of attention now, as presumably it should. Um, you're there together with others from RFF this year. Uh, let me start by asking you, in the Paris Agreement, there are uh, two uh, elements which are intended to advance ambition. Maybe there are many elements that are intended to advance ambition. And that's important because I think we'd, most people would say, logically, there are two necessary conditions for ultimate success. One is adequate scope of participation by countries. And we've got that. We've gone from 14% of uh, emissions from participating countries in terms of taking on targets under the Kyoto Protocol to 97% under the Paris Agreement. But the sufficient ambition is the other necessary condition. Are, are there ways in which the Paris Agreement, in your mind, uh, can advance ambition? And has it been successful so far in doing that? Well, there's, there's a couple of ways this can happen. I mean, one um, is what's called the global stock take. Uh, what the global stock take is is a, uh, a mechanism by which all of the nationally determined contributions from the uh, countries participating in the UNFCCC is evaluated uh, to determine whether the U the globe is on a path to keeping. Um, uh, global um, temperature increases below 1.5 degrees uh, Celsius. Uh, that's above pre-industrial levels, or uh, that's one of the you know the targets of the Paris Agreement, um, or you know well below two degrees. Um, and so the idea being that if we look at uh, those commitments and we do an analysis on whether we're on target, and if we're not on target. The idea is that, that there's an opportunity for countries to increase their levels of ambition, and uh, and and the next go around, these are on kind of five-year um, increments, um, mm -hmm. increase their ambition and reduce uh, emissions even further. Um, so the second mission um, portion of this is called the kind of the ratchet mechanism, the idea being that if, we, if there's a gap, we're going to um, uh, try to reduce that gap by having uh, all countries increase their ambition by increasing the amount of emissions they're going to commit to through their NDCs. So I think this is good. This is a mechanism. Um, we'll see how it's um, going to take place. That mechanism will not be formally deployed until 2023. But I will say that there is a synthesis report that has already come out from mm -hmm. the uh, the UNFCCC Secretariat that gives us an idea of what uh, those uh, gaps look like with respect to um, uh, hitting the targets, uh, and they're not encouraging. Um, we can talk more about that, but I think we already know that there's going to be a, a major gap. Uh, we've known that for quite some time. I haven't seen a lot of countries step forward to increase their ambition uh, in the recognition of that gap. So uh, the jury is out on how effective this mechanism is going to be. That, that's certainly correct, and that's what le recent reports indicate, although perhaps I'm too much of a half-full glass-of-water kind of guy, but I remember when the business-as-usual predictions 
for this century were up to 7 degrees C increased temperatures. And then with the Paris Agreement, uh, and now the original set of nationally determined contributions, plus the increases by a few countries, including the United States, that if the targets were fully achieved, and I'm not saying they're going to be, that then we're talking something like 2.5 degrees C. Obviously, that's blowing past 1.5 or even 2. But it's a remarkable change from what the discussion was uh, not very long ago. Oh, absolutely. I mean, I think, you know, the uh, the synthesis report says that um, uh, global emissions could very well peak in 2030. Uh, right. So that's um, that's the good news. There's no doubt about that. Um, uh, and as you say, depending on, you know, whether the glass is half full or not is what kind of a temperature target you want to hit. Uh, if you want to hit a two and a half degree temperature target, then yeah, there's 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 possibility of doing that. If you want to hit 1.5, um, as you know, Rob, the amount of budget we have, carbon budget we have remaining, mm-hmm. okay, between now and, 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 and 2050 is extremely small to be able to hit that 1.5 degree target. So in order to do that, that's the focus. It's not the sole focus, but it's a big part of the discussions at COP27 in Sharm el-Sheik. Um, our listeners, are some of them are probably inundated now by the fact that the press, many uh, newspapers who don't cover climate change all year or only here and there, are suddenly writing about climate change because of the COP. This happens every year. So to filter through all of that, what's your guide, Ray, to what our listeners should look for and listen for at the COP? What are the big issues? Yeah, so I do think, um, again, I would pay a little bit of attention to this stock take issue because this is going to come out um, next year and there's going to be a significant gap that needs to be filled in terms of reduced emissions. And so people are going to be looking to for countries to really increase their ambition in their NDCs. And so this is going to sweep through the, the COP over the next um, uh, 10 days or so. Um, the other big issues um, are not surprising, okay? These are perennial issues. Uh, the first one is going to be around finance. Um, and so this is finance in, in two forms. Uh, finance to help developing countries uh, mitigate their emissions. Um, and the uh, developed world has committed uh, to producing $100 billion annually to be able to do that. Uh, has yet to deliver on that particular um, promise. Uh, and then a second piece is on adaptation. Um, where, again, funding is going to be needed to support uh, building resilience in developing countries. Uh, Right now, there's a bit of a um, uh, lack of trust um, between the developing world and the developed world with respect to the deliverability of those uh, those funds going forward. Uh, And on the developed country side, um, there is the problem that... uh, to be able to hit those particular targets, you need a lot of private investment, not just government funds. Um, and the private investment has been lacking uh, considerably, um, certainly on, even on the mitigation side, um, but most certainly on the adaptation side. So I think there's going to be a lot of uh, conversations about, one, how do we guarantee that these funds are going to be made available? Uh, recognizing that they're likely not going to come completely from governments, but that the private industry is going to have to step up. And then how do you get private industry more actively involved in funding projects in developing countries? Um, And we can talk a little bit about the risk that's associated with those rates of return and how governments can de-risk those uh, those activities. But finance is going to be a, uh, a huge deal. 
Now, now beyond the $100 billion commitment and now the fact that even though it's not been achieved, uh, developing countries would like to see it increase to $200 billion annually or more. Um, in addition to that, which has been targeted towards mitigation and adaptation, there is the reality that certain climate impacts uh, are inescapable and cannot be adapted for. I mean, the poster child would be the the loss of land of a small island state, in which case climate change is existential, not just costly. And that's where this phrase loss and damage comes up, which some climate activists now are referring to needed reparations for previous emissions from the largest emitters, the United States, China, European Union, Russia. Um, what should we watch for in terms of these debates about loss and damage? Yeah, this is, again, one of these issues that every cop, it becomes more salient and, uh, mm-hmm. uh, and both sides become more vocal uh, about mm-hmm. it. Um, not surprisingly, because we're now seeing the impact of climate change, um, not only in the developing world, where it is severe and uh, where people are at most risk, but, uh, you know, here in the U.S., we see the, uh, we see the impacts. And so it's not that there's not recognition that there's a real problem going forward with respect to this. Um, I think from a... And I can speak from kind of a developed country perspective, at least from the U.S. side. Um, there's always going to be uh, opportunities for um, uh, for the U.S. to provide aid to countries that are suffering uh, these these horrific damages associated with climate change. One of the one of the issues is is that is it going to be taking the form of aid, which means it's sort of a voluntary contribution on the part of the U.S., or is there some formal liability that the U.S. bears, okay, associated with these damages? Um, and I think um, for the U.S. to accept the idea that it is legally liable for these damages to occur uh, is something that has been um, uh, shunned uh, and I think will continue to be shunned um, by the U.S. I can't speak for the European Union and others. Um, But um, mechanisms by which aid can flow in a way that is more um, consistent with the needs on the ground uh, I think is going to be really important. And then, of course, um, there's this idea of attributing uh, a particular um, loss to climate change rather than just natural weather variation. Uh, you can always right. argue that it's really not due to climate change. These are kind of some scientific issues that I, those can be worked out. But if this issue about aid versus liability um, has been around since the beginning of the loss and damage debates a decade ago, and it's, I don't see this going, going away. Um, that said, it is, it, it's a hugely important issue. Uh, and uh, and one that's going to occupy a lot of time at the COP uh, over the next several days, yeah. And a lot of vocalizing by delegates and probably a lot of coverage in the press because it's it's the issue over which you could even see a walkout by yeah. delegates. And there hasn't been a threat of a walkout uh, for many, many years now at these annual conferences of the parties. Now, the Paris Agreement finessed this loss and damage issue in an interesting way in the agreement itself it says that loss and damage is very important it should be taken seriously and then in the decision that accompanied the paris agreement it says that it that the uh, parties agree that it should not be the basis for legal liability or compensation um, which as you said that's exactly the the challenge here it seems like it's going to be difficult to continue to 
keep it off of the table the way it has been in previous cops. At least that's my impression. I don't know what you think. Well, we'll, we'll know. We'll know more in a few days, right? Um, uh, this is, um, you know, again, this is, you know, by the time uh, the weekend rolls around, uh, I think we'll have a pretty good idea of where this uh, where this stands and whether there is um, uh, some some room for compromise. If if both sides stick to their, you know, to their hard positions, where you know, the, the developed world, it's only about aid, and the developing world, it's about liability, uh, and can't see where there's a middle ground, then this will just be, a, you know, a confrontational experience. Uh, somewhere there's right. got to be a middle ground here where we can think right. about insurance markets, we can other think about other kinds of ways of, of, of financing um, the, uh, uh, the rebuilding after these particular episodes take place. Uh, again, of course, it is tied to resilience in some sense, right? And so... Mm-hmm. Um, um, there's nothing you're going to do for for the small island nations that are you know right at sea level right now, um, but in other places I think you can build some resilience in. But again, we need to get to the point where there's discussion about the middle ground here, rather than just adhering to our hard positions. Now, a, a question I always receive from the press at the end of each year's conference of the parties, and I bet you get this question as as well, is was the conference a success or a failure? When you get that question at the end of COP27, Ray, if you get it, what would be the criteria? What's going to make COP27 a success or a failure? It's so... I always look at these things, Rob, and I think you do the same way. This is not a single event. This is a process. Yes. Okay, so this right. is an event in a process. And so the question you have to look at is, over the last several years, is the process um, working? Okay, and I think you already pointed out, look, look at the progress we have already made. Now, is that due to the UNFCCC or is it due to a variety of other factors? There's mm-hmm. certainly a lot of other factors involved. But it is an opportunity for the world to come together and talk about these things. The UNFCCC has put together an enormous amount of transparency and reporting. It sounds like, you know, things that are not all that exciting, but they're, they're fundamental uh, to an understanding of where we are with respect to climate change and how to reduce emissions going forward. And so the ability to look at the NDCs, okay, and to unpack those and understand what a country needs uh, to be able to hit its particular target uh, and then understand whether the global community can provide that information or what have you, that, those are things that are part of the process going forward. Um, and the process continues, okay, we're making advances on building the, you know, the carbon markets together, uh, the transparency um, uh, I do think there is a lot more discussion about options for finance. And so uh, I do think, in general, it is a successful enterprise. Is it moving at the pace necessary to hit 1.5? No. <laughs> okay. You know, um, but it is, a, uh, it is a process, and I do think it's moving forward. So at the end of the day, um, I don't necessarily go back and give these uh, individual cops a grade. Um, but, the, you know, has progress been made is always something that I kind of look for. And I, ex- I expect there would be some progress made here. I would love to see more progress made on this loss and damage and trying to get more um, focus on the middle ground here. Uh, if that came out, then I would consider this to be a tremendous success. So stepping back then from COP27 and even from the UNFCCC, um, are you optimistic or pessimistic for the future about climate change policy around the world, not just the United States, but around the world? I'm of mixed minds of that. Um, mm-hmm. uh, again, I do think, you know, that there's, there's tremendous progress that has been made in uh, decarbonizing developed economies. Um, and there's just there's no getting around that. There's certainly 
progress has been made. Um, there's still an enormous amount of work to be done to electrify developing countries and then to decarbonize, you know, that uh, that particular sector. Um, and we'll see how that uh, how that plays out. One of the one of the issues that is coming up, uh, and it it will be talked about in the COP. There's already a series of side events um, that I know are forthcoming in the next few days, and that's around the interplay between. Uh, emission reduction policies targeting uh, the industrial sector, um, and these would be the sectors producing basic commodities, iron and steel and chemicals and what have you, that are traded internationally, and international trade. Um, and so the issues can be boiled down quite simply. Uh, if you are a developed country, uh, you are producing these internationally traded products. You are hoping to decarbonize those industries through policies, and those policies raise the cost of those products. Then you lose competitiveness in the international market. Um, and what you see with the European Union, uh, their carbon border adjustment mechanism, uh, since the European Union imposes very high carbon prices on its manufacturing sector, on its electricity sector as well, um, and they fear that they are losing uh, uh, manufacturing uh, to countries that don't have those uh, those aggressive policies, um, they're putting, putting in border measures, they're putting in tariffs to kind of um, limit the leakage of these emissions from the EU elsewhere. This is a, a big issue. Um, it's one that's in the U.S. as well, uh, Japan, Korea, you name the countries that are developed countries that are working on the uh, uh, internationally traded commodities. And I see this is going to be something that's going to be talked about in this COP. And when we move to Dubai, I think it's going to be really important there. Um, mm -hmm. this, things are just gaining traction now, but I think Dubai will be focused pretty heavily on these border, what we call border measures or this nexus between climate policy and international trade. And you're referring to the subsequent conference of the parties that, in that's correct. 2023. So that's a, a perfect place to bring this conversation to a close about the United Nations Framework Convention on Climate Change, these annual conferences of the parties, and, and so much more. Thank you, Ray, for having taken time to join us today. Thank you, Rob. I really enjoyed this. This is great. Our guest today has been Ray Kopp, a senior fellow at Resources for the Future. Please join us again for the next episode of Environmental Insights, Conversations on Policy and Practice from the Harvard Environmental Economics Program. I'm your host, Rob Stavens. Thanks for listening. Environmental Insights is a production from the Harvard Environmental Economics Program. For more information on our research, events, and programming, visit our website, www.heap.hks.harvard.edu.